Good evening. It's a pleasure again to be here before you, opening the word of God. Jeremy told me that this evening we'll, we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper later, and so he asked me to prepare something that would go some way towards preparing our hearts for that. So I thought this evening we would look at another psalm, another psalm of David, and we would look at Psalm 69, which your pastor read to us a short while ago. Psalm 69 has such a different tone from Psalm 16, the the psalm we were thinking about this morning. The, The both of them come out of distress in some sense, but while Psalm 16, David focuses and dwells on God himself and his goodness. In Psalm 69, his, his thinking is not going in quite that direction. Psalm 69 focuses much more on David and his suffering. It's one of the three or four psalms that are most quoted in the New Testament. The, the apostles and the prophets are very clearly aware of how well this psalm reflects the experience of Jesus Christ, his sufferings. And that shouldn't be at all a surprise to us. We read the title to the chief musician set to the lilies, a psalm of David. This psalm is another one of David's. And again, the David part is important if we want to understand the psalm rightly. When we read the psalm, we see it's, it's a cry to God. It's a prayer from the depths, a prayer from a man who is suffering deeply. He, he's surrounded by enemies. They hate him. And it seems so unfair to him that they hate him. They hate him because he's righteous. He, he prays that God would save him. He prays that God would punish his enemies. And at the end of the psalm, Eventually, he does come to confidence. He is sure that God will hear him, that his, his prayers will be answered. But we say again, I think, what we said this morning about how we read the Psalms, especially the Psalms of David. It's, it's always a temptation for us to try and get immediately the goodness from a psalm. We, we read the psalm and we immediately jump to our own experience. We think this psalm, it must be written about us. It must be for us to pray. It must be an expression of our own joy, our own sorrow, our own frustration, whatever the psalm may be. And if we read the psalms like that, we're missing out on so much It's not just a prayer that we can pray. It's not just a song for us to sing. We miss what the psalm is really about if we take a psalm of David in that way. A psalm like this is not just the psalm of a suffering believer. It's the psalm of a suffering king. It's the psalm of David. A psalm written by, written for, God's anointed king. Written to express his experience. The king God set in place to lead his people is suffering. David is the Messiah of his day. He is the king given by God to rule his people, to save them, to give them peace and justice. His reign, David's reign, is God's reign. David is mediating the reign of God over God's people. David's enemies 
they're not fighting against David just because they're mean and nasty. They're, they're fighting against David because they hate God. And David is the figurehead of God's people. We, we can't read a psalm like this and just jump straight into our own experience. We need to think about the king. David could sing this psalm. The kings after David who ruled God's people, they could sing this psalm. And in the end, it is a psalm for Jesus to sing. When the Lord Jesus himself quotes this psalm, and when other writers of the New Testament quote it about him, they know that he is the last king, he is the greatest king. The one whose experiences were larger and fuller and deeper than all the kings before him. Jesus felt this psalm in a more real, a more significant way, even than David himself. It, all the promises of God to Israel reach their fulfilment, their end point in Jesus. All the promises God made to David are fulfilled in him. All the suffering David endured for the sake of his people sets a pattern, and the pattern reaches its fullest dimensions in the Lord Jesus. So we need to think about David. We need to think about Jesus. But then this psalm is also written to the choir master, if you notice that at the start. When, when the king sits down to write this psalm, he's not just thinking about himself and his own relation to God. He wants the whole nation to be singing this psalm. He addresses it to the choir master, to the man who leads worship in the temple. The whole nation, corporately, are going to sing this psalm together in public worship. And the psalms are going to be collected and published in something like a hymn book. A psalm written to the choir master, is, it's written with a deliberate intention that that should be done. This isn't just private poetry to express private feelings and relieve private stress. It's the whole nation will sing this, and they will sing it knowing that it's about their own king. Kings are not private individuals. What a king does will affect the whole nation under him. When he makes decisions, he decides on behalf of the nation. When God saves him, when God raises him up and delivers him from his enemies, God is saving the nation with him. When God sends suffering on him and sends him down into the depths, the whole nation is involved in that in some sense. So in the first instance, yes, the psalm's about David. But David is a forerunner. He's a model. He's a shadow of the reality to come, a, a placeholder. And the real king, the son of God, is the Lord Jesus. The Psalms of David show us different aspects of the Lord Jesus, and we need to sing them together. We need to think them through as his people. We need to think about what the suffering of our king means for us. And so I think that's what we will try to do this evening. We will look through Psalm 69 it's a, it's a long psalm, we won't be able to look at every verse, but we will look through it, looking first at David, and then at the Lord Jesus, and then at ourselves. So we see David in this psalm, and we see that he is in deep distress. We, we don't know the precise occasion for his misery, but we don't need him to tell us exactly the circumstances He's telling us how they affect him. He's telling us how he feels. 
He, he says, verse 1 and 2, he starts talking about drowning and waters up to his neck. It, events have come upon David and he feels like he just can't handle what's going on. The, the waters are up to his neck. He's sinking in the mire. There's thick, sticky mud and it's got him and he's going down and he can struggle, but there's no standing. He's, he's in deep waters. The floods are over his head. He, he just doesn't see any way out. He's doomed. The flood is sweeping over him. I, this is picture language, obviously. David has not had an accident crossing a river. It's, it's a metaphor. But it's a good metaphor. It's a metaphor we naturally understand. The, the waters, the flood, the ocean, the waves, these are pictures of things we can't control, things that are just too powerful for us. We can't hold back the sea. We can't stop it smashing into the cliffs, the power of the ocean. It's greater than anything human. Floods and deep... It comes through into our everyday language, this sort of metaphor, floods and deep waters. In small ways, almost comical ways, I'm, I'm up to my neck in work at the moment. Well, to be honest, I'm a bit out of my depth with this one. It, it's a natural picture, it's a Bible picture as well, though. David, using this sort of language, he's drawing on a deep background of Bible imagery, going all the way back to Genesis. When, when the earth was first created, it was formless and it was void. Darkness was on the face of the deep, we are told. The planet was covered in water. It was deep. And the water was formless. It was surging it was chaotic it was shapeless it was dangerous and God then imposes order on the chaos he speaks he sets boundaries for the seas he God is the one who can hold back the oceans he is the one who limits them and stops them destroying it, it comes out in Job it comes out in other psalms God rebukes the waters even the mighty oceans flee from him God says this far you shall come no further David is not God. He's, he's just a man. He's powerless to save himself from the waters. And, and he feels it. He feels his own smallness, his weakness. And he cries out to God to save him from trouble. This is too much for me. I'm, I'm overmatched. As the psalm continues, it does become clearer what sort of suffering it is, what, why David is so distressed. The flood waters are actually his enemies. He, he is surrounded in verse 4. My, I've got more enemies than the hairs of my head. I, I can't... Maybe David had a few more hairs on his head than I do. He, he, can't, he can't count them. And they're strong enemies. Verse 12, he says, The elders who sit in the gate of the city and act as a local government, they're, they're talking about me behind my back. People respect the elders, the, the people who carry weight in society, the people who carry public opinion with them. They're, they're talking about David and spreading rumours about him. But then also, the drunkards mock David in verse 12. Everybody in society, high and low, the drunkards are there making up rude songs about him. The people who ought to be his allies have turned against him. In, in verse 8, he'll say, my own brothers, I'm a stranger to them. I'm, I'm an alien to my mother's children. There are people who I've grown up with and they know me so well and you'd think they would be my friends. You'd think they'd be my supporters. 
but it's as though I'm a stranger to them. It's like they don't even know me. His life is bitter because he has so many enemies of all kinds around him. It seems that everybody hates him. And his suffering is... There are, there are things that just exacerbate it, things that make it worse, that make it sharper. His enemies hate him without reason. He doesn't deserve their hatred. He feels the injustice of it. He says in verse 4, I've stolen nothing. I still must restore it. They, they hate me without a cause. David in verse 7 says, It's actually for God's sake that they hate me. But for your sake I've borne reproach. They hate God, so they hate David, because David is God's servant. In verse 9, he'll say, it's zeal for your house that's eaten me up. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. It's David. He wants to build a kingdom for God. He wants to build a house for God. And it's his zeal for that project that makes him a target for his enemies. They hate him because he's righteous. He's been fasting in verse 10 and 11, and his enemies are using that as a stick to beat him with. He, he's wearing sackcloth, he's not eating anything at mealtimes, and they see this and, and they start spreading gossip about him. They, I wonder what it is, David's hiding. He's fasting, he's wearing sackcloth, he must have been doing something terrible. He must be repenting of some. he's hiding something evil. The king shouldn't have secret sins. The people have a right to know what the king has been up to. D David is being righteous. His, his fasting, his humbling himself is a good thing. He's leading the nation well. He's setting them an example of repentance. But these people hate him for it. It's so unfair. It makes the suffering sharper. And then they're lying about him as well, which is, that's a terrible thing for anybody to face. They're accusing him in verse 4 of crimes he hasn't committed. They're, they're trying to make him apologise for things he hasn't actually done. They're, he's innocent and they're trying to make him act as though he's guilty. You have to give an apology for this. You have to say you're sorry, even though there's actually nothing to say sorry for. There, there's really no way to fight against false accusations for the king. You can deny it, but a denial only feeds the publicity machine and makes sure everybody's talking about the accusation. You can attempt to rise above it and ignore it, but then your enemies will just say, oh, you see how he can't deal with that? He knows it's true. They're cruel. In verse 20, David's heart is broken. He's in despair. Reproach has broken my heart. I'm full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity. There was no one. I looked for comforters. I found none. They gave me gall for my food, for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. He's, David is in tears at this point. He's in agony, and he's just wishing his enemies would just let up for a moment, just give him a break, Sh show him a little bit of kindness, have some pity. And instead, they're mocking him in verse 21. They're, they're holding out false words and laughing at him. He's crying for relief. And, and they pretend to give him relief. They're pretending to care about him. They're saying, oh, David, you poor man, look, have, have some food, have a drink. You're so thirsty. But the wine's vinegar that they're offering. They, they're pretending to offer him comfort. They're actually enjoying his suffering. 
They're laughing at him. They are so cruel. And perhaps worst of all, perhaps the sharpest thing that he's suffering is that God doesn't seem to be answering him at all. If, if David is in trouble, if he's overmatched, his obvious solution, his first solution, is to cry out to his God, the, the God who cannot be overmatched. And David does that. He cries out in verse 3. He says, help me, save me, I'm sinking. But then... He's saying, but I'm, I'm weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. He's pleading with God, and it seems that heaven is shut, that it's just iron above his head. He's crying out until his throat is dry. He's weeping until he can't see anymore, and he has no answer from God. He says in verse 17... Don't hide your face from your servant. I'm in trouble. Hear me speedily. He, he feels that God is turning away, that God knows what's going on, and he's not interested. He's not going to even look at David's situation. Oh, only God can save him, and God isn't listening. But then, in the end of the psalm, there is a change in tone, isn't there? David is certain, in the end, that he will be delivered. He can be 100% sure because of who God is, God is faithful. God's love is steadfast. God does not change, and God's promises do not change. God's love for his people does not change. David can pray in verse 13. My prayer is for you, O Lord, in the acceptable time, in the multitude of your mercy. Hear me in the truth of your salvation. God, David does know in the end that there will be an acceptable time. There will be a time of God's appointment, a time God chooses when he will hear him. God's mercy means that it can't be any other way. If God is delaying, it's not because God is unfair and it's not because God is deaf and it's not because God is powerless. There is some reason, perhaps a reason known only to God himself, why his prayers are not being answered now, but God will not abandon him forever. God can't do that because of God's own steadfast love. David has promises, doesn't he, to plead. Hear me, O Lord, your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Don't hide your face from your servant, in verse 16 and 17. God has told David, we, we can read the promises in 2 Samuel, I will give you rest from your enemies. I will build you a dynasty. My steadfast love will not depart from your offspring. 2 Samuel 7. David can hold on to those promises. He, he might be distressed. He might be feeling that heaven is closed against him. But he has objective truth. He can read the promises. He can say, my God is faithful. My God will not desert what he has said. And the, prayer, the, the psalm ends then with joy. God will do justice. He will punish the wicked. He will repay them. He will save David. He will save his people. As we said, though, that's David. That's his experience. But he's writing as the king. He's writing as the anointed one, the Messiah. David, everything David suffers here we can say that is more true 
of the Lord Jesus. Jesus was more righteous than David, more kingly than David. When we read the Psalms of David, again we'll say we need to be wearing the bifocals. We can look at David through the bottom half of the lens, but we need to lift our eyes through the top half. We need to see the Lord Jesus in these Psalms. This Psalm shows us something of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus for his people, for his church, for us, if we are believers. This psalm is its so specific, it's so accurate when it describes what Jesus would suffer. He was distressed. He was in despair. He felt as though he was trapped in a flood, drowning, stuck in the mire, unable to free himself. That David, he feels as though he's dying. He feels as though his time's running out. He, the waters are rising. He can't escape. Jesus went further than David. The waters did close over Jesus's head. They cut off his life. David has powerful enemies who hate him and they hate him unfairly and they lie about him and they're cruel and they mock him. Jesus, his enemies were the ones running the nation, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Romans running the empire. And they were totally dishonest in the way they attacked him. All the leaders of the nation, the ones who were influential, the ones who could tell everybody else what they should think, they were all uniting together, despite their differences, to attack Jesus. And they were unscrupulous. They did not feel they had to tell the truth about him. They didn't care what was true. They didn't even care what was legal. Read the Gospels. You have Caiaphas, the high priest, ruling over a meeting of the Sanhedrin, as he did so often, and just being cynical, a complete power player. It's better for the nation that one man should die, he says. And John says, he said that as a prophet. He didn't know he was a prophet, but he was, because the words he said were true. It was better that one man should die for the nation. But Caiaphas's own meaning was just cynical, wasn't it? It, it doesn't matter about justice. It doesn't matter that this man has done no wrong. We're going to condemn him and we're going to kill him because he's a problem. Because if we allow him to continue, the Romans will come down on our heads. So better that this man should just be broken and swept aside. Justice doesn't matter. They plot to murder Jesus. They lie about him shamelessly. They search for false witnesses to lie about him under oath in a trial. There's so many enemies and they hate him so much and they will go to any lengths to get at him. His own family doesn't defend him. His brothers, you'd think they would know who he was. They have grown up alongside him. They've seen the man who was God. They've seen his holiness. They've seen his goodness all through his life. And yet they just don't understand him during his earthly ministry. There's a point when they try to stop him. The, the people he loved, the people whose support he wanted, stood away from him. Thought that he was insane. Tried to stop him from doing what he was doing. And like David, it is his love for God that brings all this upon him. It's his zeal, his faithfulness that mean his enemies hate him. He, he is condemned to death for threatening to destroy the temple, which was a lie. He never made such a threat. But the thing that bought him that hatred is his zeal in cleansing the temple, the house of God. 
his love for God, his determination to confront wickedness, that made him enemies. And his enemies hate him so much. Again, we see his experience in this psalm. Even as he hangs on the cross in, in agony, they come to taunt him and to mock him. He looks for human comfort and he finds nothing in the end. Even ordinary passers-by who, who don't have a stake in the game, they're mocking him. It, his heart is broken. He's loved Jerusalem. He's longed to see her repent. And in the end, she rejects him. And he hangs there on the cross and people are literally offering him vinegar to drink. He's not immune to insults and hatred. He doesn't float above it all in an impenetrable bubble of divinity. Jesus is a real man. It hurt him to see people so full of hatred for him. He knew that his enemies hated him because they hated his God, but it still burned. And he cried out to God to deliver him, again, just like David. And like David, he was not answered immediately. We, we, we thought of the Garden of Gethsemane this morning. Think of it again. He prays to his father, and then he goes back and prays again with, with the same words. And then he goes back and prays again a third time with the same words. He doesn't feel like he's getting any answer from his father. He's praying desperately. Sweat is rolling off him like drops of blood from a wound. But again and again he will go back and pray the same prayers because he, his soul is not at rest. He doesn't feel like he has had an answer from his father Later, hanging on the cross, he will cry out in the darkness, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He, he's still looking to his father. He has not lost any of his trust, any of his faith, but he feels deserted. He feels abandoned. He keeps looking to God. The waters are rising about him, closing over his head. His feet are stuck, but he's, he is still praying. And in the end, he is sure that God is committed to him, that his father is bound to him. He is God's servant. God will not forsake his servant. God's unchanging character means God will not forsake him. Jesus does not give up hope any more than David does. He's certain at the end God will hear his prayers. At the, at the end, as he dies on the cross, he says, it is finished. And that's a cry of victory. He, he has won the victory for himself, for all God's people. There will be a new heavens, a new earth, full of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. The servants of the king will live there in peace. We, we read the Psalm of David, but it does show us Jesus' experience. It shows us something of the heart of our own saviour, something of his feelings. And thirdly then, once we have seen the Lord Jesus in the Psalm, we know it's a psalm for us to sing. We sing songs about the Lord Jesus' suffering because the suffering of the king is not a private matter. The king and his people always are bound together. What, one of the worst things, in fact, about David's suffering in this psalm is that he knows it's not just about him alone. It's not he who suffers all on his own, and if he's defeated, if he dies... That's just a private thing. He knows that his people are, are relying on him. 
that if he's defeated by his enemies, it will bring misery on his faithful people, the people he loves. He he prays for the people who hope in God in verse 6. If the king is dishonoured, then those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, will be ashamed because of me. Don't let those who seek you be confounded because of me, God of Israel. True hope in God is bound up with hope in God's king. If the king is defeated, if his enemies are triumphant, if he remains ashamed, if he's never vindicated, then the people who look to God, who seek God and hope in God through him, will also be put to shame. They will be dishonoured. They will never be vindicated. He reigns for them. If he's defeated, they are defeated. Their hopes are ruined. If he remains in the grave, the Lord Jesus, then our faith is in vain says Paul in 1 Corinthians. If the Lord Jesus died and stayed dead, it would be pointless being a Christian. We might as well give up and go home. We would be put to shame completely. The authority of God rests with the king. The honour due to God will be given to him through the king. There is no other way to come to God, to serve God, to be one of God's people, except through the king. And if the king is defeated, then God has no people. All hope is lost. But David, in the end, is confident. Jesus, in the end, was confident. We can be more confident than David. David puts all his hope in God's character, in God's promises. And yeah, we should do that too, of course. But we have seen God's faithfulness in much greater ways than David. We've seen the great king suffer for his people. We've seen him be broken. We've seen him die. But he came back from the grave. God vindicated him. God raised him up. God gave him victory. And just as his people share in his sufferings, we share in his glory, in his joy. At the end of the psalm, David's looking forward to his salvation. And he's not thinking of himself as an individual happy to be saved all on his own. He's thinking of himself as the king, the one who rules the city, the one who governs God's people. He says in verse 32, when the humble see it, they will rejoice, they will be glad. When those who seek God see it, their hearts shall live. When they see God rescue his king, They shall rejoice when we see the resurrection, when we see the ascension, when we see the spirit poured out from heaven on the people of God, when we see Jesus triumphant, victorious. We rejoice, our hearts revive. If if we're feeling dead and weary and hopeless, this is the cure. Look at the glorified king, be filled with hope. This is how God gives hope to his people. He gives salvation to his king This is the answer to the cries of the needy, to those in prison. Having saved the king, God will establish his kingdom. He will save Zion in verse 35, in verse 36. Heaven and earth will praise him. Everything will join together to praise him because he will save his people. He will build the cities of Judah. His people will dwell there forever. This is us. If we are the servants of the king, if we are his people, this is the story of the king who suffers and dies and is raised up to life and victory. And it's our story too, if we are his people. We died with him, we are raised with him. Nothing can take away our happiness in the end. We are secure 
because our happiness is found in the Lord Jesus. Unless he can be pulled out of heaven and reburied in the grave, we are saved and we will be with him forever, part of his kingdom. Shall we give thanks together to our great God and King? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the good that you do to us as we read it, as we meditate upon it. We thank you that the Lord Jesus is everything that we need. We thank you for the king who died for his people, who rose again. We thank you for this psalm, for all the scriptures which testify of him. Father, we ask that you would enlarge our hearts and minds as we read and think on these things. We, we thank you for the humility of our Saviour, for his willingness to take on flesh, to suffer for us, for his willingness to share in the consequences of our sins, of the fall, for his willingness to go to the grave for his people, to suffer for our sins, to save us from the death we merit. Father, we ask that as we see him, we would understand a little more of him, more of what he has done for us, more of what he has carried for us, more of our, our own wickedness, more of your justice. We pray that as we look at him, our, our faith would grow, that we would become more trusting, more loyal, more obedient servants of our king. We pray that individually our lives would reflect his character more and more. We pray that as churches we would corporately exalt him, corporately give him honour in our life together, that we would mirror his goodness, his mercy, his obedience in our own lives together. Father, please bless us as we look to our King. Amen.